Hello and welcome. I'm Matthew Smith and I'm Managing Editor at Investment Magazine and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check our website, investmentmagazine.com.au and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this episode. Welcome, everybody. I'm joined today by David Breach, the new president of Vista Equity Partners, the global investment firm focused on enterprise software, data, and technology-enabled businesses. David serves on Vista's executive committee and private equity management committee and the investment committees of Vista's private equity funds. And while he has taken on this new role as president, he still retains his chief operating officer responsibilities and continues to manage company operational leadership roles. Good morning, or you in the US. Good evening, David. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Matt. As, as I like to say, I wake up every morning with a long and varied to-do list and I'm, <laughs> thrill- I'm thrilled if I get to a quarter of it. Yeah, look, I bet. I bet. And look, congratulations on your new role as president. I had the great opportunity to I think to talk to you um, on our planning call on the day that the announcement came through. And, um, you know, so that was a really, uh, really great conversation to have. I know you were um, really excited about that role. Can you kind of describe a little bit about um, your new role and what you're kind of bringing to the strategic direction of the firm? Uh, No, sure. I'd be be happy to, Matt. And, you know, as I like to say, uh, maybe from my days uh, studying martial arts, we give people black belts because they've been acting like one more so than... Uh, they're going to start acting like one. And so I think, uh, you know, Robert, uh, uh, you know, changing my role to president was in some ref- in some respects just reflective of the work I've been doing at the firm, which mm. I've obviously loved. Mm. Um, uh, you know, when when I started at Vista seven years ago, um, you know, Vista was really at a at an interesting inflection point at the time. Uh, you know, we used to talk about ourselves as having 14 billion of cumulative capital commitments mm. And, uh, you know, Robert's pitch to me to come join him at Vista was, um, you know, there's just incredible opportunities to invest in enterprise software and Vista is well positioned to really uh, take advantage of those opportunities and that he really needed help uh, making sure that the firm uh, was, uh, you know, ready to ready for those opportunities. And so, you know, as I joined the firm, I really, you know, part of my role was making sure that you know, the infrastructure, the processes and procedures and whatnot, we're all, uh, you know, uh, being uh, being built in a way that we could handle the growth. Uh, I think when I joined, we had about 130 total employees. We had, mm-hmm. I think, 25 people in what you would call the administration or support functions as, as we, you know, are here today. We've got almost 80 billion and in uh, assets under management, mm-hmm. about 500, a little less than 500 total employees, and the the administration uh, side of the firm is about 150 folks. So we've had you know significant growth over that time period, both in terms of you know assets uh, under management and people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also you know during the during this time period, you know, really focused on a number of strategic initiatives for the firm. So you know, like most businesses, they start off as founder as founder businesses and founder run businesses. And, you know, we've been keenly focused over the last decade on how do we, you know, move from being a founder run business to really being a, uh, an institutional multi-product asset management firm in the enterprise software space. So, 
Um, you know, I've been, you know, partnering with other, other senior leaders in the firm on evolving the governance of the firm to really empower and spread the management and governance of the firm among a number of, you know, really talented mm-hmm. uh, partners. Um, you know, we, uh, seven or eight years ago, we had a fairly small credit practice and we really felt that there was significant opportunity. And so, um, I really focused on how do we build out our credit platform? How do we take advantage of that opportunity? So I was a, a big champion of that and was directly involved in creating a New York office for the firm and, uh, you know, building out our credit capabilities so we could we could scale it much more significantly uh, than it was. Uh, we've also built out a what we call our permanent credit uh, platform. So we have a, uh, we have uh, fund vehicles that, you know, most of our investing, uh, our investors uh, expect us to, you know, buy companies, uh, invest in these enterprise software businesses, you know, implement our operational improvements, and you know, four or five years later, uh, uh, sell the companies for an attractive return. Well, you know, there's a whole another segment of the market where we we see companies that are operationally, you know, fairly mature companies. Uh, and they're generally vertical focused enterprise software businesses that um, uh, are well positioned in their market. But what investments can you make in them to keep them well positioned for 20 years? And so your your perspective on what you're investing in at the company level and how to how to achieve that is just it's it's different. And so we created a permanent capital fund to take advantage of those types of opportunities. Um, and then the other thing that's been really uh, really exciting for me is just really being, you know, uh, a key champion in advancing the firm's efforts around, uh, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, ESG. Um, You know, it's an interesting dynamic. There are very few firms, and certainly we're the only firm of our size that was uh, in the U.S. that's been uh, founded by an African-American man. And so, uh, needless to say, DE&I initiatives have always been near and dear to the firm as well as ESG. But again, as we've scaled our business, uh, we've wanted to scale our activities and opportunities in those areas. And we, you know, we believe in enterprise software, we're, we're at such an inflection point to make uh, change and positive impact. And we really have this notion of kind of software for good. How can what we do uh, not only obviously uh, you know make attractive returns for our investors, but how can we impact uh, society at large? And so, um, so I'm. It's exciting for me to be part of those initiatives as well. Yeah, definitely. And you've touched on a few points there. Really looking forward to digging in a little bit further on certainly um, the ESG and um, inclusion conversation. Will get to in a moment. But yeah, firstly, I mean, one of the things that uh, probably, um, you know, a lot of private equity funds and, um, and um, you know, asset owners here who, who work with private equity might be interested in is, is this kind of idea of the, the portfolio and the ecosystem and how you can use that ecosystem to perhaps kind of supercharge um, some of the companies you're working with and some of the founders. Can you, I know, you know, that this ecosystem is, is something that, um, you know, Vista's kind of known for. Can you give me a little bit of an insight into how that works and, and a little bit of the secret sauce behind um, the, the, that ecosystem? Yeah, well, I'm not sure I'm going to give you any secrets <laughs> on on this podcast, but I'm happy to talk about I'm happy to talk about the ecosystem. So, yeah, you know, when when Vista started 21 years ago, there was kind of 
two key premises to the firm. Number one, that enterprise software is a really attractive type of company to invest in. And I think at that point, most people had not, you know, really understood what makes enterprise software so attractive. Mm -hmm. And then, and then secondarily, that if you bring, you know, operational rigor to these companies that you can generate attractive returns on a very repeatable and and, uh, predictable and consistent basis. So as we go 21 years forward, that is still the fundamental thesis of Vista. And 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 so how do we do that at scale is really what the ecosystem is all about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back in the day, we'd buy a company We'd go to work on helping that company, uh, you know, operate more effectively and more efficiently. And as we really saw the opportunity, it was like, well, how do we scale that? We can't do it, you know, one at a time. Mm-hmm. And and so that was the concept of the ecosystem. So when when we think about the ecosystem, there's a few parts to it. So number one, um, you know, people talk about kind of the Vista, quote unquote, the Vista playbook, mm-hmm. which is really a reference to we've got over a hundred of what we call Vista best practices that are different, you know, operating perspectives on what we think a well-run software company looks like and 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 how they ought to operate. And we literally have documented white papers and libraries that you know we can we can provide these to our executives to say here's some things that we have found are effective, how would you apply those to your company? Secondly, uh, we have the second kind of uh, leg in our in our ecosystem is what we call Vista Consulting Group. So mm-hmm. we've built out over time a consulting arm that's captive to our firm uh, that is right now numbers over 100 folks that are, uh, their focus is helping our companies effectively implement best practices uh, in those companies. And so, so being able to bring that, um, that expertise uh, in Vista best practices is the next part of the ecosystem. We obviously, um, you know, many firms have operating partners. We, we have a group of really talented operating partners that again, spend, you know, all of their time focused in the enterprise software space. And, and how do we, you know, work with the management team, work with the board, work with Vista Consulting Group to really help, you know, drive these operational transformations. Another key element of our ecosystem is our C-suite executives. So uh, we have over 150 C-suite executives that have worked in more than one Vista investment. And in certain cases, they've done, you know, three, four, five tours of duty with us. And so having that ecosystem of executives uh, or that bench of executives that are steeped in, you know, how Vista thinks about running software companies is an, is is another part of the ecosystem. So you pull all that together, and you've got you've got kind of a comprehensive approach to how do you help companies, uh, you know, make operational transformations at scale. And then the other thing we do that I think again is very unique in the industry is we have, um, we call them best practice sharing seminars. And, uh, you know, obviously in COVID, we've unfortunately had to do some of these virtually, but we we have these summits or seminars where, you know, right now I think we own 70 portfolio companies. We bring, you know, all of the, you know, sales uh, leaders together. We'll bring all of the product development leaders together. We'll bring all of the CFOs together, all of the CEOs together in these, in these summits where you know folks get to be in a room with you know 70 80 100 other executives 
who are, you know, basically running similar companies. I mean, there might be different industry verticals or might be different horizontal applications, but they're fundamentally, you know, operationally similar companies and they can share with each other what are their opportunities, what are their challenges, what things are they doing in their companies to help meet those opportunities and challenges. And so it's a very unique opportunity. There's not many um, you know, and this resonates a lot with founder, uh, you know, a lot of software businesses, when we invest in them or when we acquire them, we're acquiring them from the founder or we're investing with the founder. They have very little opportunity to sit with 70 other CEOs to talk about what are the challenges they're facing in enterprise software. So, you know, that, you know, when I think about the Vista ecosystem, that I think yeah. without giving you any secrets, uh, that's the, uh, you know, that's the Vista ecosystem. And, and I, I've not, um, you know, there's obviously a number of folks that, that, um, invest in enterprise software and, and, you know, in 2021, uh, the investment world has woken up to how attractive enterprise software is as an asset class. But I think our ecosystem is pretty differentiated in the market. Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I want to ask you in a moment, a little bit about, kind of valuations and how you're perhaps able to, you know, extract value out of your investments. Um, and I, and I suspect, you know, some of the tenants you just discussed there will perhaps come out in that, um, part of the conversation as well. But, but I just wanted to shift gears for a moment, um, and speak a little bit about our Australian local market. Um, asset owners here in Australia are getting bigger, and uh, laser focused on outcomes um, um, for members in light of new uh, legislation and regulatory, uh, regulatory reforms kind of coming in, your future, your super and and some other things. Um, what are some of the ways that you can partner with asset owners to get quality returns? And do you have any examples of, of partnerships you're doing in Australia? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the things that we've observed is, as we've, um, you know, participated in the Australian market and mm. and you know, we really see um, a number of the investors that we work with, in particular, a number of the supers as being, you know, really highly sophisticated investors that when we talk to them, uh, you know, about what makes enterprise software so attractive, whether it's the, you know, recurring revenues, the long-term contracts, mm -hmm. the resiliency of these businesses, you know, they, they really get that. And, and so when I think about how we're partnering, you know, part of it is, what products are we bringing that are really solving a need and and how you know does what we do in enterprise software help them uh you know help them with their investment needs you know secondarily i mean our companies are at the forefront of what's changing in various industries and so you know we work with our investors on you know what insights can they learn about other industries because most of our companies participate in some other vertical industry, so we might, uh, you know, have a have a business that participates mm -hmm. in the in the rental real estate market, in the uh, you know automotive claims and insurance market, what have you. And so, so we get insights into these industries that I think our our investors find um, interesting and helpful to them mm -hmm. beyond just their investment in a Vista fund. But how can they? How can it help them? Um, uh, you know, and other investments they might be making. But the other thing that that we've seen that I've really been excited about is is how we've partnered on co-investment. And um, you know, a lot of investors talk about wanting to do co-investment. Oftentimes co-investments are done at discounted basis. And so obviously from an investor standpoint, it helps them 
you know, average down their cost of fees across the amount of capital they're investing. Um, but what we find is that, you know, not, you know, while many investors want to co-invest, the way that these transactions operate, you really need, you know, smart, sophisticated, nimble investors to be able to co-invest with you if it's mm. going to be a successful program. And, you know, we found with some of our partners in Australia, some of the some of the supers, that we've really had that partner and we've we've had some really um, I think exciting co-investment transactions um, uh, uh, that I think have been a really a win-win. And, and I think the side benefit of these transactions is, is, well, you know, investors obviously do diligence on any fund that they're going to invest in. When they actually go through an underwriting process on an individual asset, they really see in a granular manner how you approach investing. And some of the feedback we get from our co-investment partners when they've actually gone through an underwriting with us of an asset um, is just really positive feedback. And I think it it further helps solidify uh, the relationship. And I think it further helps uh, helps our investors appreciate what we think makes us uh, a differentiated investor. And so, you know, as we look forward you know, we're continuing to look for opportunities to create these co-investment opportunities, but we're also, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what, you know, what products do our investors need, and what can we develop for them that will be differentiated, mm-hmm. and that that will 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 be something that maybe they don't have today in the form that we can provide it to them, given our our focus on enterprise software. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're actively um, working with some funds in Australia. Any you would highlight uh, in terms of, um, you know, case studies or uh, examples of of partnerships that you've done that um, seem to have worked quite well? Yeah. So generally, most of our transactions, unfortunately, have Mm. uh, lots of confidentiality agreements Mm. around them and whatnot. Um, um, But, you know, I will I will just, you know, say as an example, you know, uh, Australian Super has Mm. been a uh, has been an investor in our in our you know funds for a number of years. And they've been a very um, a very strong co-investment partner with us. And we've really uh, appreciated their approach. And I think Mm. we've been able to bring them some some uh, you know interesting investment opportunities that they've been able to you know, take advantage of, and it's it's worked well for both of us. And you know the other nice thing about you know some of these co-investment opportunities is that um, you know the the enterprise software market is growing. Um, it's been growing at roughly you know upper teens twenty percent per year. Mm for the last decade. Mm, wow. And, you know, if you look at, you know, um, you know, Gardner and some of the other firms that do projections, it's expected to continue to grow at that rate for as long as you can accurately, you know, forecast. And so it's really emerged as, as the, you know, largest part of the global economy. And so there are some, you know, really interesting companies that, you know, are too big for us to acquire on our own. Mm. And so when we've yeah. got good co-investment partners, it opens up, uh, it opens up um, a set of transactions that we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be able to do just with our own, uh, with our own capital. So again, we, we found it to be just incredibly beneficial to both yeah. uh, our investors as uh, our co-investment partners, as well as ourselves. Yeah. Really interesting. Look, um, I want to ask you a question. You mentioned it at the top. Um, this, you know, this idea around ESG and, and diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, you mentioned just then the performance um, profile of this sector, and obviously it's um, quite phenomenal. But from a 
you know, from a cultural um, um, perspective, there's, there has been some question marks over broadly over, over technology, right? So what, what are your, some of your observations around technology's journey, just generally as a segment, but then um, your own um, ESG journey as a, as a, as a ESG journey as a firm. I mean, it's um, quite mature now. So can you talk to some of the, the learnings that you've had and some of the ways in which you're implementing from a, a diversity and inclusion and ESG perspective in, you know, in the contemporary context and looking forward? Sure. So I'd say speaking broadly about the industry and not mm. really talking about Vista specifically, mm. You know, I think when you look at either technology or asset management, you know, neither one of them are going to get, you know, a gold star on, you know, where they are from a DEI perspective. They're two industries that I think have been, you know, generally, you know, lagging, uh, you know, lagging the overall, uh, you know, performance of the business world at large. And so, so we view that as a great opportunity for us as someone who's participating in those two markets in terms of, you know, kind of how, how can we really be a leader and how can we really inflect, um, you know, significant change in, you know, both the asset management world and, you know, the tech world at large, you know, before I talk about what we're doing, I think the other issue that, you know, I think tech tech is dealing with, and I think this is really more what I'll call on the consumer tech, side of things mm-hmm. more so than the enterprise software or enterprise side of things is really, you know, privacy has just continued to be a significant yep. issue. And, and, you know, when you look at, um, you know, when you look at the Facebooks and the Googles and some of these others, um, you know, I think, I think, I think different countries are wrestling with, you know, what, you know, what should privacy look like? What should the privacy framework be? Um, you know, how do how do you make sure people understand what their privacy rights are and, and how their information is being used? And um, and, you know, that's been a big topic of conversation in the United States. And, um, you know, I don't think I don't think that I don't think the tech community, nor do I think most governments have really sorted that out. You've obviously seen certain places, you know, EU in particular in the U.S., you know, California uh, the state of California has been driving some of these initiatives, but um, you know, I still think that's a very evolving area. And um, I, you know, at times, uh, you really wonder: Do consumers understand fully what's going on, and do they care? Hmm. And I think uh, you know, I kind of look at my kids and I talk to them about these issues, and they don't. You know, they they kind of seem to accept it is what it is, and they don't seem to care. Uh, as much or they don't have as much sensitivity because it's all very native to them, where I think some of us that grew up in a world where, you know, your information was not being tracked all over the Internet, it, it's much more, you know, kind of concerning and foreign to us. So I think that's going to be an, an area that's going to be interesting to continue to watch and, and see, you know, how governments and legislatures uh, sort that. Um, you know, in terms of, I guess, kind of turning this back to, you know, kind of VISTA and, and you know, ESG and DEI, um, so again, you know, from a DEI perspective, it's always been something that we've been focused on. Given, you know, given the the, the founding of our company and and our and our uh, our founder, um, but but we've really looked at, you know, how can we, you know, really drive this in a in a in a very um, you know focused and measurable way. So you know, one of the things that we 
you know, as an asset manager, one of the things we, you know, we wanted to look at, well, what are the things that we can control and really inflect directly? So one of them, for example, is, you know, board diversity. So we, you know, we own 70 companies uh, that's has 70 boards of directors and, you know, most of our companies have outside directors. And so we, we really, you know, several years ago, put a focus on how are we going to increase board diversity? Mm. And, you know, we really looked at it from a standpoint of, okay, sure, we can move the numbers, but are we actually creating opportunities? Because, you know, one of the biggest issues for someone to join a board, and in particular in a public company context, the first question that most people use as a screen is, well, tell me about the other boards you've been on. And so if you're someone that hasn't had access to that world, Mm -hmm. you know, that becomes a barrier. So as we've looked at um, you know, how do we enhance our board diversity? You know, one of our core tenants was, you know, we want to create opportunities for, for folks that it may be their first board membership, but, you know, we're going to train them on how to be a good board member. We've got other programs and whatnot. So I think as we sit here today, um, I think over 70% of our boards have at least one female member. Uh, and I think 85% of our boards have at least one, uh, you know, person of color. So we want those both to be a hundred, but, you know, I think we've made, we've made really good mm. progress in that regard. And, and, you know, one of the things that a, a lot of our DE&I efforts really focus on the pipeline, because you're not going to move the numbers if you don't change the pipeline of mm. talent. So we, we kind of look at it holistically. So one element is, you know, how do you expand your pipeline to maybe bring candidates in that you wouldn't otherwise have met? So how do you go to different schools? How do you, you know, go to different, you know, geographies uh, to try and find uh, diverse candidates? But then we also really start from some ground up initiatives, supporting organizations that are actually getting people into the flow of the pipeline who would never be there. So we look at organizations like code.org, you know, girls who invest, what have you, that are actually, you know, creating new pipeline that didn't exist. And so we think that's important. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say, it's, I think that great insights for for funds as well and corporates who might be listening in Australia, because I think that, you know, there's absolutely a push, a push on there to to start augmenting, um, you know, some of the boards and some of the pipelines here in Australia. But uh, yeah, go on. Sorry, cut you off there. Yeah, then I was just going to, you know, switch gears a little bit to ESG. So, yeah. so we think, we think we're very uniquely positioned uh, to be impactful from an ESG perspective, because as we think about, um, you know, both us as an asset manager, but then us as a portfolio of software companies, um, you know, in general, the carbon footprints of our businesses are on the smaller side versus an industrial or a manufacturing business. But, you know, one of our goals and in uh, initiatives is to try and have all of our companies be carbon neutral during our ownership period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got an initiative underway now to have all of our companies measure their carbon footprint, because obviously, if you want to, you know, reduce it and offset it, you have to measure it. So we're, we're we've got an initiative across all of our portfolio companies to uh, to be able to you know measure their carbon uh, footprint and then and then reduce and offset it. But the other thing that's I think really interesting in the software space is that you know we have kind of a notion of like software for good. Like how are our products actually benefiting their customers, their communities, their end users, and how do we think about increasing the impact uh, that our portfolio companies can have? 
you know, in their communities by virtue of the different products they have. So, you know, for a, for example, you know, we own a company Finastra that, um, uh, provides, uh, you know, uh, among other things, core banking software used by most of the large commercial banks, you know, globally. Uh, in the U.S. during the pandemic, we had this uh, uh, program that was called PPP, which was a loan program to help support businesses that were suffering during the pandemic. Um, well, in order to access that program, you had to do it through a financial institution. So, um, you know, most uh, businesses in communities of color don't deal with the banks that ordinarily have access to these programs. So we had Finastra, uh, you know, work with various community banking organizations to create a light version of software to help these banking institutions access the PPP program and then to help their customers hmm. go through the application process. So, so, you know, we think about ESG, not just from the perspective of, you know, how do we make our companies run more responsibly? How do we make them run in a more sustainable fashion? But we also think about how do, how can our companies actually have, you know, benefits to society, you know, beyond what, you know, the scope of their current operations may contemplate. And, and we ask our companies to, you know, to kind of look for these opportunities. Um, so we're really, you know, we're really excited about what we think we can do. We, you know, we're, we're really trying to take, you know, Every business has a journey of maturity on ESG, and we're, you know, we're trying to take our journey and just go to almost like a, a third order level of, you know, how we think about impact and and uh, uh, and uh, you know environmental sustainability. Yeah, and it's a conversation that's only going to accelerate here in Australia as well. So, and I'm sure you'll see that in the discussions you're having with your local superannuation funds and, and, and others. Um, I mean, look, it'd be remiss of me not to, while I had you on this conversation to talk a little bit about, you know, valuations in, in the sector, um, we witnessed down here in Australia, I think probably what many say would, could end up being, um, Australia's biggest, uh, tech, tech deal potentially, you know, $39 billion offer by Jack Dorsey square for Afterpay. Um, which many probably consider a bit of a high valuation. Um, we're seeing a lot of high valuations in, in tech deals across the US and, and, and more broadly around the world. What's driving uh, tech valuations at the moment and what's driving um, um, you know, valuations within your, your segment as well? Sure. Well, you know, I think, you know, as I talked about when, you know, Vista got started 21 years ago, I think that uh, you know, enterprise software was something everybody used, but not many people were investing in. And as 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 we look forward to today, I think the investment community has very much woken up to uh, what makes enterprise software incredibly attractive, and 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 they're really very resilient companies. So again, you know, we're, we're looking at companies that have high recurring revenues, hmm. long term customer contracts. Um, you know, very sticky solutions. It's very hard if a if a if a customer wants to change solutions. It's oftentimes very painful to do so. Um, and these businesses generally have high free cash flow because they, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of cap, you know, capex capital spending. So you know, their conversion of EBITDA to free cash flow tends to be quite high. And so. You know, 20 years ago, banks wouldn't lend uh, to enterprise software businesses because they really they really said, well, wait a minute, 
the assets of the business are the employees and they get yep. on an elevator every day and leave. And what I think people, you know, what I think Robert was one of the first to see and what people have come to realize is that really the, you know, the, the, the asset in an enterprise software business is the customer relationship and the recurring revenue. Hmm. So, so I think part of what's, you know, been driving uh, valuations in the, in the, in the technology and the enterprise software space is this premium that people are ascribing to recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. You know, m most of our companies, they start the year, they already know where, you know, 90 plus percent of their revenue is coming from for the year if they don't do anything different. You know, very few businesses have that characteristic. So, so you've got kind of that dynamic and then you've got, you know, all of the different tailwinds to the industry generally. So you think about the proliferation of big data, you think about um, the, the development of artificial intelligence, robot, you know, robotic process automation, uh, machine learning, the internet of things. These are all, uh, these are all, you know, concepts and, 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 and uh, ideas that are driven by software. And so, so you've got an industry that's got very attractive fundamental characteristics. It's growing at 20% a year because of these various, you know, tailwinds that aren't, aren't going to change anytime soon. And so, you know, you've really had the investment market kind of, you know, really view these as very attractive assets. So, you know, simple, you know, supply demand economics, uh, you know, it's going to have an effect on valuations. The other thing that's really interesting about enterprise software is 98% of the companies in enterprise software are private. And so if you want to invest in enterprise software and you're a public investor, you've got a fairly small segment of the market that you can, you know, invest in. And then uh, if you really want to, if you really want to access the enterprise software market, you really have to look at firms like Vista if, if you really, you know, want to, uh, you know, want to in, uh, invest in the, the majority of the market. Um, I'd say one of the interesting evolutions to this that, you know, we've, we've focused on as you kind of think about valuations um, you know, nowadays, you know, there there is a larger uh, segment than there used to be of companies that trade on revenue multiples versus EBITDA multiples. Yep. So, you know, 15 years ago, you know, a lot of it was EBITDA multiple focused. Now there's a lot more companies that are revenue multiple focused. So as we look at revenue multiples, re we really look at those multiples in the context of, you know, the growth rates of the revenue. So we look at uh, you know, we call it a, you know, other people call it a peg ratio. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a growth adjusted uh, earnings multiple. And so for Vista, um, while we might be paying higher revenue multiples on a growth adjusted basis, those multiples are fairly consistent with multiples we were paying seven or eight years ago. So, you know, we might be paying a slightly higher revenue multiple, but it's for a company that is growing at a 25, 30, 35% clip. And I think, you know, with the advent of, uh, you know, the cloud and, you know, uh, SaaS, you know, hosted uh, software solutions, you're finding uh, more companies that can grow at, you know, frankly, incredible rates when you look at, you know, their, their, their revenue basis, mm. because, you know, with the advent of, of, you know, Amazon Cloud and Azure and whatnot, a lot of the infrastructure they need to grow, they're frankly outsourcing to others. And uh, again, it kind of, you know, reduces any sort of CapEx or other expenses they need to grow and they can really invest their money on the 
go to market or sales side of things as opposed to the, you know, the infrastructure of the business. So, um, you know, I'm not smart enough to predict where multiples are going to go, you know, generally speaking, but, but I, I think the, I think the, the elements that investors have come to realize that have put premiums on these types of businesses, I think they are going to continue to fetch, uh, you know, premiums to, you know, other companies that don't have these attributes. Yeah. I mean, look, I was going to ask you, but I I think you've covered it there really, which is, um, um, you know, how do you capture, um, it's one thing, you know, valuations and what you're paying, but you know, the, the main thing is, you know, how do you capture that future growth potential of these investments? And you covered it there, you know, earlier with the way in which, uh, you know, you're able to work with founders, use the ecosystem, um, you know, but also, uh, you know, they're on, you know, talking and, and thinking about those re- revenue multiples as well. I mean, a lot of, you know, f- funds and, and other investors do have a lot of tech and platforms, you know, in their in their portfolios these days because they've been such a great driver of, um, you know, of value in portfolios. So, um, yeah, any further tips on on capturing and, you know, that f- future growth potential of these types of investments? Sure. Well, and I think that's, I think that's a great, uh, you know, great question. You know, what, when we're looking at a software business that is maybe trading on a revenue multiple, it, it may have, you know, no EBITDA, but it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, got two or 300 million of revenue growing 30% a year. We look at that investment and we say, how can we help it grow at scale? Because it's one thing, you know, when you're a 50 year, $75 million revenue business to grow 30%. Well, you know, when the law of big numbers starts to hit you and you're now, you know, a three or 400 million revenue business, how can you keep that growth rate up? And so again, as, as we've, uh, as we've seen the software market evolve over you know, the 21 years we've been in this business. And as we've evolved our operating uh, practices and parameters, we've developed a whole set of best practices to help our to help our entrepreneurs or our founders think about, okay, how do we help you grow at scale? So how do we stop you from slowing down growth as you get big? Uh, or how do we take you from a 25% growth rate to a 35, 40% growth rate? And so, so you know, you kind of approach... Um, you know, those companies from a different perspective on what do they need? You know, we've, we've you know, I talked about we got a li- library of 100 best practices. Not every company needs 100 best practices. And so when we look at these companies, we say, you know, where can we help this company inflect value creation given where it is and what it needs? In some cases, it might be on the cost side of the business. In other cases, it's, you know, on all of them, it's some version of the revenue side of the business as well. But in certain cases, it's like, you know, kind of how do we help you grow at scale? Because that is a unique, uh, that is a unique dynamic that, um, you know, a lot of companies don't know how to do because they haven't been through it. You know, these are, some of these companies are 10 year old companies that every day it's, we have a, you know, an expression that with some of our CEOs that were, you know, founder CEOs, Every day, it's the largest company they've ever run. And it, you know, it's grown 20% a year. It's the largest company they've ever run next year. And, and so when we bring perspectives that we've learned from, you know, being involved in many, many of these companies, you know, we help them think about here's what's here's here's the future challenges coming for you as you're trying to grow at scale. And here's how, you know, we can help you meet those challenges. 
Yeah, great, David. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. I feel like we've actually covered quite a lot of ground. So um, thanks so much um, for, for your time and your insights. Uh, it's, I appreciate being invited to speak with you. And, uh, and uh, you know, thanks again for your time as well. Yeah, not at all. Thanks. Thanks.